Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. We've been studying the book of Ruth for some time now, which tells the story of how a woman from Moab, not from Israel, came to be a part of the people of Israel and an ancestor of David and thus of Jesus the Messiah. Thus far, we've looked at the first half of the book, chapters 1 and 2. And before moving on to chapters 3 and 4, I thought it would be helpful for us to consider various laws that are the background to the story, particularly the last two chapters. Without some knowledge of these laws, the story of Ruth, I think, will not make sense and in some ways will even sound really bizarre. We have noted thus far the law regarding gleaning in which God instructs the owners of fields of orchards and vineyards not to harvest thoroughly their crops, but to allow the alien, the fatherless, and the widow to glean or harvest whatever is left over, leaving us with at least two principles which we have seen. The first is we should remember that our survival does not depend on our efforts or efficiency alone. To allow people to collect what you have missed should not be seen as a threat to your well-being. Zib read to us several Sundays ago from 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about giving to those in need. And he uses the example of the collecting of manna in the wilderness. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Our survival does not depend primarily upon ourselves. And secondly, the receiving of charity or benevolence may in fact require some effort. As we see from the example of Ruth, it required great effort. In the story that we see in chapter 2, she gleaned all day long, and then she gleaned for seven weeks. So what we are told about is the first day of gleaning, but she did that for another seven weeks. Gleaning is not unfamiliar to us, I think, in this country. There are, in fact, in this country certain parts where gleaning is practiced. I do find it interesting, though, that gleaning as it is practiced in this country is usually done by volunteers who glean food to give to those who are in need. It's not done by those who are in need. And in some ways, I think we've missed a step there that we actually find Ruth, as, who is an alien and as someone who's a widow, not simply sitting on the sidelines and allowing volunteers to do it for her, but she actually goes out and does the work herself. Now we come to chapter 3. And the story of Ruth takes a surprising turn. And in fact, for those of you who are writers and those of you who are readers, you might notice that the style is quite different, that the storyteller here, um, well, it's, it's just quite different, that the approach that he or she takes. Uh, now we have sort of mystery and intrigue. So, for example, at different points in the story, we don't read of Boaz and Ruth, but rather of the man and the woman. Um, It's like, well, we know who they are. Why don't you just say Boaz and Ruth? What's the big secret? What's the big mystery? Well, part of it is this is how the story is being told. Something else we don't find is any reference to God, any invocation of of the divine presence, as we did in chapters 1 and 2. You may remember from chapter 2, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. We, we don't hear this in chapters 3 and 4. Or when he speaks to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Boaz is speaking to Ruth. We don't hear any of this either. Or Naomi saying, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. So things have changed. The narrator continues with the story, but in a different way. But for us to understand and appreciate chapters 3 and 4, there are two laws from the Torah that we need to understand. And this may end up sounding like a lecture. I don't intend it to be that. But we need to have, I think, a firm understanding of these two laws so that we will appreciate what will happen in the rest of the story. The first is that of the levirate marriage. It comes from the Latin levir, L-E-V-I-R, which means brother-in-law. It concerns the family duties that are referred to in chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Chapter 3, 9 through 13. Um, Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for, for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. But what is the background to this particular conversation between Boaz and Ruth? The Levirate refers to a marriage in which an in-law is involved. If a man were to marry and die without children, the name of his, well, his name would not be perpetuated, and so in order that his name would continue, his brother would in fact marry the widow, or at least have children by her. They would, she would have, or he would, through her, have children for the dead man. There's been a lot of confusion about this, and a lot has been written about it. It's only mentioned three times in the Old Testament. And in all three places, it's not spoken of in the same way. So we have discrepancies which seem to create a lot of confusion and discussion. The first, or one of the passages, is here in Ruth, and we will see this as we go along. The other two are Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25, both of which are also mentioned here in Ruth. So Ruth seems to be the place, if you want to look at the concept of love-rate marriage, this seems to be the place for you to go. It is, by the way, also mentioned in the Gospels. Do you remember when the Sadducees approached Jesus? That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Uh, They're going in a different direction. They're talking about the resurrection. But the concept, the foundation behind it, the background, is the concept of the levirate marriage. That if a man dies without having children, his brother has a responsibility uh, to have children through this woman so that the name will continue. The first time it is mentioned is in Genesis 38. And interestingly enough, we look at this uh, after Christmas because 
And Tamar is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1. We read in Genesis 38, verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. That is to say that Onan did not have to marry her, but was in fact to impregnate her so that she would have a son who would be the son of Ur, and the line of Ur would continue. Um, In this particular case, Ur would have descendants because his brother would fulfill his duty. But as if you read uh, Genesis 38, Onan was also wicked and God killed him, leaving Tamar without any children. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. In other words, he was going to have Shelah raise up children for Ur and Onan, but Judah was afraid that Shelah might die too, that there must be something about this woman. When Tamar realized that her father-in-law was not going to keep his promise, she disguised herself as a prostitute. Um, He thought she was a prostitute, went into her, got her pregnant, and when he was going to have her burned alive for adultery, she produced evidence that he, in fact, was the father of the twins that she was carrying. And one of the children is Perez, and Perez is mentioned here in Ruth chapter 4. If you look at verses 11 and 12 of Ruth 4, Then the elders and all at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so Genesis 38 isn't exactly helpful because it isn't done the way it's supposed to be done because Onan was a wicked man and in fact Tamar gets pregnant uh, by her father-in-law. The second mention is found in Deuteronomy 25. And here, the practice that preceded the law becomes part of the law. By the way, this raises an obvious question about the law that we find that was given at Sinai. Was this something that was just brand new that God sort of sprung on his people? Um, I don't think so. I think that many of the practices that had been happening beforehand are now simply made part of God's Mosaic law, part of the covenant, but these were things that people had been doing all along, and one of them was, in fact, the Leverate marriage, where a brother would, in fact, continue his dead brother's line. Um, Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 25. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders 
take off one of his sandals and spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. Here we see something different, and that is that Onan was not required to marry uh, Tamar, but simply to have a child by her. Here, uh, a brother is to marry his brother's widow, and the first child will be considered the child of the dead brother to carry on that line, and then all the children after that will be the children of the living brother. It is a difficult passage, and it sounds so strange to us. Um, I was telling Gia that it's hard if you Google the whole concept of you know the unsandled, uh, the family of the unsandled. You'll find a lot of stuff written, but it's all done in a very humorous way. No one seems to take this very seriously, um, which is unfortunate because it is, in fact, what we see in the law. There are four things to consider about the Deuteronomy passage. First of all, it refers to brothers living together, which implies an extended family, um, which is quite different from what we find with Boaz and Ruth. And there is no Judah involved here. You may remember that it's Judah who says to Onan, you need to do this. But this is a case if brothers are living together. There is an extended family. The second thing, the passage emphasizes the obligation of the second brother, the living brother, not his rights. There is a very strong emphasis on obligation. At the same time, the third thing we see is that the obligation is not absolute. There is an element of choice. If you do not want to marry your brother's widow, if you don't mind having one sandal taken and being spat in the face, then there is, in fact, you can do that. I mean, there is a ceremony of public humiliation, but if you choose that, it's not, if you don't marry your brother's widow, we're going to kill you type of deal. The individual has a choice. And lastly, the purpose of the marriage is a mean of perpetuating the life and name of the deceased, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. That is its purpose. The third mention is in Ruth chapter 3, and we will look at it as we come to it. But what we will find is a different way of practicing the Leverate marriage. The, de- the details are not identical with Genesis 38 or Deuteronomy 25. There is no father-in-law for Ruth as there was for Tamar. And this is not a situation of brothers living together. Ruth had two sons, but they both died. And so they cannot do the Leverate marriage. What we find this is my opinion, is in Deuteronomy 25 is the legal form. In Genesis 38 and in Ruth 4, we find different ways in which this is practiced. What we find in Ruth 4 is the practice of the Leverate marriage in conjunction with the second law we'll look at in a few minutes, and that is that of the kinsman redeemer. Please remember this, that the book of Ruth is, in fact, narrative literature. It is not a court transcript. It is not a legal document. It isn't a this is how you do it type of thing. This is a story about Ruth and Boaz. Again, a story needs to be understandable. It needs to be coherent. It needs to have enough information for the audience, the readers, to understand it. But even when we go, let's, let's leave Ruth aside. Let's go back to the Torah, which is the law. What we find, in fact, is that even in legal passages, 
put legal in quotation marks, they are not comprehensive and they don't cover every type of circumstance. Rather, they provide instruction, and oftentimes in a narrative form. And from these instructions, we can draw out inferences. So, in fact, Deuteronomy 25 says nothing about a kinsman redeemer marrying a widow. But the people in the time of Ruth saw that this, in fact, is how the law was to be practiced. The purpose of the law is not to give us a handbook of what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing to do. That's the way most people look at God's law. Here are the do's and the don'ts. Rather, what we find is that God is trying to instill in his people a value system. A value system in which there is, in fact, caring for those who are in need. There is, in fact, concern for the widow, for the fatherless. That it isn't just like, well, whatever, you know, sort of bad luck, she needs to go back home. God's concern is to instill in his people love for those who are in need. And thus we have these various laws, if you wish, these various practices that God called on his people to do. The second law is that of the kinsman redeemer, and this may be more familiar to you. The word in Hebrew is goel, G-O-E-L. It refers to a near kinsman who acts as a redeemer of persons or property. Its root meaning is to protect. And so there is a sense in which the goel redeems, but he also protects. We find this mentioned, by the way, in chapter 2 of Ruth. If you look at the last part of verse 19 and then verse 20, then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord blessed him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Kinsman Redeemer is mentioned seven times in chapters 3 and 4. So it is a central concept. In the law, in the Torah, there are four situations in which a goel is to act as redeemer, in which he is, in fact, to act in that capacity. The first is found in Leviticus chapter 25. And this has to do with property. Uh, Let me read it to you. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countryman has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value of the year since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. Um, So here, the the function of the goel, of the redeemer, is in fact to buy back property. It is as though, if you wish, uh, a man pawns his property. Okay? And then a relative comes back and buys it back. You know, you, you in fact so, sort of go into hawk for this. You borrow money against the property and you're going to lose the property otherwise. A kinsman redeemer is someone who comes and pays the person that lent you the money, and therefore the property is still yours. Okay. So this is the first, and it is about the redemption of property. This we will see in Ruth chapter 4, okay, tied in with the Leverate marriage. Okay. The second case is also mentioned in Leviticus ch- chapter 25, and this is not about selling property, but of selling oneself into slavery. 
If an alien or a temporary resident among you becomes rich and one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells himself to the alien living among you or to a member of the alien's clan, he retains the right of redemption after he has sold himself. One of his relatives may redeem him. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in his clan may redeem him. Or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. So here, the redeemer, the goel, acts as a member of the family who has had financial difficulty and he buys that person out of slavery. Um, slavery, in our, at least in the American context, has very negative connotations um, and, and strongly racial connotations. This is not something you find in scripture. Um, what we find is that when people went into debt, in order to pay the debt, oftentimes they would sell themselves, either for a period of time or in perpetuity, they would sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. Which may sound like a horrible thing, but if you think about it, if you sell yourself to someone as a slave, then that person is responsible for room and board. They have to feed you, they have to shelter you, and so you have a place to stay. It's either that or you have huge debt and you're living out in the middle of nowhere by yourself. The third time Goel is mentioned is drastically different than anything that we have seen. It's in Numbers 35. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill and he strikes someone so that he dies, he is a murderer and the murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill and he hits someone so that he dies, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice aforethought shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death, he is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. And who is the avenger of blood? He is the Goel. He is the Redeemer. The blood of the kinsman is to be avenged. This is one of the most solemn responsibilities of the Goel. And what it does is it emphasizes the family's collective responsibility to care for the weak and for the oppressed. Obviously, the person who has died cannot rectify the situation, and the Goel acts in his place to make things right by putting this person to death. To death. By the way, if you're interested, Numbers 35 deals with the cities of refuge. If you accidentally kill someone, then you run to the city of refuge, and you need to get there before the Goel, before the kinsman redeemer, the avenger of blood, gets his hands on you. The fourth time that the goal is mentioned is in Numbers chapter 5. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When a man or woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty, and must, and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it, to all, give it all to the person he has wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest. So let's say that somebody wrongs me, that they have in fact, let's say, borrowed 
$1,000 from me and have refused to pay it back. Well, according to the law, they are to pay back the $1,000 plus one-fifth. That would be 20%. That is $200, so $1,200. But what if I have died? Well, that $1,200 is to go to my kinsman redeemer. And if there is no kinsman redeemer, then it is to go to the priest. Now, what we find is the Goel acting as trustee. When payments are due, when restitution is to be made for a wrong caused by the sin of another. So this is what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. We need to understand, though, that these aren't just bizarre laws that somebody sat around thinking up. Behind these are profound truths. First of all, that Israel became God's unique possession, whom he redeemed out of Egypt and among whom he dwelt. And secondly, the Lord, the land was the Lord's, which he gave to Israel. So in light of these two realities, an impoverished Israelite who sold himself into slavery was to be redeemed, because in, in a real sense, he was already redeemed when God redeemed them out of Egypt. And land was not to be sold in perpetuity, because God the land belongs to God. God gave the land to Israel. Therefore, that land belongs to Israel. It belongs to the families there. And it should not be sold. Uh, that it should, in fact, eventually be returned. And then there is the matter of justice. God is a God of justice. And therefore, the Goel is the one who is, in fact, to mete out justice. As the Lord told Israel in Leviticus 26, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So you may be wondering, Damon, why are we studying these two laws beyond the fact that they set context for the book of Ruth? Let me give you several things as we close today. First of all, we need to remember the character of God. In Exodus 6, God told Moses, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Redemption is the key component in the covenant relationship between God and his people. They are his people. He is now going to redeem them. And he is going to take them to the land which he promised to their ancestors, to their forefathers. He is the redeemer. And this is a key concept. In the prophets, which come much later, as they try to remind the people of the law, of the covenant, God is spoken of as Redeemer. Particularly in the book of Isaiah. I'll just read several passages from Isaiah 41. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, the King of Israel. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God.
In Isaiah 44, again, this is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. You know, it seems that in this context, God should say, I am the Lord, your Creator. And at the heart of the relationship is God as Redeemer. And then in Isaiah 47, our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And in the Psalms, time and time again, it speaks of God as Redeemer. Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Time and time again, we hear people calling to God for redemption. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. And then in praise, let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. In all of these passages, we see that God is the one who redeems his people. He stands by the oppressed. He calls them into covenant relationship. All of these are an expression of his love and mercy. So we should not be surprised that in fact there is in God's law for his people the office, if you wish, of the Redeemer, of the kinsman Redeemer. Because this person in a real way reflects who God is. That God does not neglect or forget about the poor or those who are in need. That oftentimes he works through the kinsman Redeemer either to bring about justice or to redeem land or to redeem a person himself or herself. The second thing that I have you think about is that one of the things that we see is that person or personal values take precedence over material concerns, property values. But the material world matters. It's not unimportant. I think as New Testament people, we sort of look at the Old Testament and we think, you know, this, this stuff about land, this obsession with land and making sure that it reverts on the year of Jubilee seems a bit strange. But I think part of that may be because we have neglected the material world. We've forgotten that God's world, his creation, is in fact important. And this should inform our view of what it means to be human, that we are body and soul. There is a unity. Which means, if you think about it, when we speak of redemption, we are speaking of the whole person, both body and soul. And thirdly, when it comes to the matter of the kinsman redeemer, I cannot help but think of what is written in Hebrews 2. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. When we speak of Jesus as our Redeemer, we are not speaking of some abstract theoretical. We are talking very practical. He is our brother. He is our kinsman. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. It's really quite remarkable. And then lastly, we need to remember that there is a price to being a kinsman Redeemer. As we saw in the passages in the law, Sometimes it meant the payment of a debt. Someone perhaps had sold land because they owed money or they had sold themselves into slavery because of indebtedness. And the kinsman redeemer must redeem them, but he or she must in fact put out money. They in fact must pay for this person to be redeemed. And this is true of God's redemption of his people as well. 
in Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. By name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. God's redemption of his people was not without cost. I read to you a moment ago from Hebrews 2, verse 11. Let me read to you now verses 9 and 10, the verses that precede it. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. We should always remember that redemption is costly. And as we will continue, the Lord willing, next week, looking at the story of Ruth, as Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, has the opportunity to redeem Naomi's land and to act as the liberate to, in fact, marry Ruth, this is not without cost. And in what Boaz does, he reflects the reality of who God is, that is, one who is in relationship with his people, who is willing to pay the price and has paid the price to redeem his people. Let's pray together. Father, I I suspect that we struggle with the whole matter of law. Even though we have a multitude of laws in this country, we don't like someone telling us what to do, being the boss of us. And if there are laws, we want them spelled out clearly. Not real comfortable with stories or poetry telling us how we are supposed to act. As a result, we may fall into either being lawless or being legalist. Instead of realizing that you have called us to be your people and you want to instill in us a sense of how we are supposed to act, that we are to care for those who are in need. In the language of the Old Testament, to redeem them. To give to those who are in need. Even at great cost to ourselves. After all, our survival does not depend solely upon ourselves. You are the one who causes the rain to fall, the flowers to grow. Our lives are in your hands. I thank you that the Lord Jesus was willing to become one of us, to be willing to call us brothers, and to give his life that we might have life. I thank you for Boaz, who though probably had no idea, reflected in such a clear way who you are. Your willingness to redeem those 
who are in sore need of redemption. May we think on these things and meditate on these things in the days to come. I thank you that you called us together on this day and this place to worship you in spirit and in truth. Now as we meet to discuss church matters, church business, may your spirit guide and direct us. May things be done decently and in order. And may you be glorified in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.